0: Good morning, Good morning. <clears throat> It's the first time I've preached since we've moved everybody into the center sections and I'm glad for it because now I can more easily make awkward eye contact with more of you with you in the in the center section while I'm preaching. Um, we are going to be in Romans 8 today. We're going to pick up where Pastor Mark we're going to overlap a little bit. he finished us up through verse 1 two weeks ago, and we're going to start in verse 1 and spend a little bit of time there um, and and go through verse 11 today. So if you want to open up to Romans 8, that's where we're going to be the the entire time. So if we see here in verse 1, we see Paul tell us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when Paul says, therefore, in verse 1 and we ask what is that therefore therefore it's really pointing back all the way through the entire book of Romans so far and remember we're spending weeks and months and what will ultimately be years going through this book but it's one letter so when Paul wrote it to the church at Rome, he intended for it to be read in one sitting. So when he's pointing back to other parts of the book, uh, earlier in the book, we're thinking back weeks, but they would have been thinking, oh, right, that's right, he said that a few minutes ago. So sometimes it's helpful for us to see you know, how we got to where we are, especially when you have a verse that starts out with a therefore. So Paul... He would have known, obviously, that this that he was writing was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He would have even known that it was scripture, but he wouldn't have intended it necessarily to be broken out and and, uh, broken down the way that we're doing it. I find that incredibly helpful, as have many churches over the uh, couple millennia of Christianity. Christianity. So, all right, what is the therefore? point back to. Why is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? It really points back to the beginning of the book all the way through chapter 7, but specifically, let's look at, I'll read to you what Romans 5.1 says. Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the summation of Romans up through chapter 4. So we have been justified through faith in Jesus, and because of that, we have peace with God. So we are sinners. God is holy and just. And how do we make those two go together? We have to be reconciled. Those two realities have to be reconciled. Because of Adam, we're born sinners, Born condemned, remember back to chapter 5, we don't have the ability in ourselves to reconcile that reality, a holy God and us as sinners. And we talked about this, the law. If we could follow it perfectly, maybe that'd do something for us, but we can't, and it wouldn't. Peace only comes through faith, and faith only comes through and from Jesus. Because we have been justified, we have peace. And because we have peace, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at the end of chapter seven, Paul said in verse 24, this is Paul. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's the answer? Who is the answer? The answer is Jesus. Jesus will deliver you. Justification comes through Jesus. Peace comes through Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's verse 1. Let's read the whole text for today. Romans 8, 1-11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You haven't left us in the dark. We thank You that You have given us so much that we can read and lean on and rely on to teach us about who we are, but more importantly, God, about who You are and what it is that You have done for us through Your Son, we thank you for that incredible gift. And we pray that even now you would open our hearts and minds that the Holy Spirit might supernaturally work in us to understand what this is, Section of scripture means not just that we would have head knowledge, not just that we would feel better about ourselves, but we may take these realities found here in Romans 8 and apply them to our lives that we might become more like your Son, Jesus. Father, we pray knowing that you will be faithful to work this in us, and it's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Well, I had a disappointing week. This week I got called in for jury duty and yeah see you think that's the disappointing part the disappointing part for me was Tuesday when I called the check to see if I was gonna be have to go in I was told that there were no jurors needed and as convenient as that was for my work and for my wife I was pretty disappointed. Even when I texted Amber and I said, hey, uh, they don't need me for jury duty. She said, yes. And then, sorry, babe, after that. Because she knew that I really wanted to go. I wanted to go and see. I've never been called to jury duty. Um, and I'm not as young as I look. So that's surprising that I have never been called uh, to jury duty. I wanted to go and I wanted to see the inner workings of our judicial system without, you know, actually being under the judgment of that judicial system. So I was ready for the, those courtroom moments, you know, what exactly is a ute, and you can't handle the truth, and all this kind of stuff that you see on TV and in the movies, but I didn't I didn't get any of that. If you don't know what those references are, go watch some 90s movies. Um, you see, I was already thinking about the courtroom, though, when studying uh, this text for the past few weeks, because the idea of judgment Of legal judgment, condemnation, is right here in this text. So to me, the illustration for this sermon today was really obvious. It's condemnation in a courtroom, this idea of judgment. So someone, namely us, all of us, have violated a law and we are condemned. That's how this chapter starts out, with that idea. But verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The key word here is now. There is now no condemnation. There was condemnation, absolutely. We were condemned. Further, we deserved that condemnation. Why? (laughs) Because we're guilty. We had the death penalty with no possibility for parole. And this wasn't a sentence based on some crime of passion where the sentence might be lower. No, we were lifelong criminals. Your story, my story, is that we have been in prison for most of our lives for many, many crimes that we actually committed. The vilest of crimes deserving of the harshest of punishments. You're on death row. I'm on death row. Imagine one day they come, they take you out of your cell, and they bring you before the judge, and they say, hey, you're free. You're no longer condemned. And you're looking around, and you're thinking, you've got the wrong guy. You don't understand. I'm actually guilty. I mean, most people who are in prison maintain their innocence, but I'm owning it. I'm guilty. So you've got the wrong guy. And the judge says, no, we know that you're guilty, but we've got the right guy, and you're free. There is therefore now no condemnation." The judge says, this guy over here, he's actually going to take your place on death row. What crime did he commit, you might ask? judge says, no. He didn't commit any crimes. In fact, he's a model citizen, and more than just a model citizen, he's actually my son. And He's volunteering to take your place and to take that condemnation that you deserve. You hear that and you think, it's not fair for Him. It's not just. It's not right that we who are guilty should be free while this guiltless man should pay the penalty. Nonetheless, we are free. For those of us who are in Jesus That's our story. We stand guilty before God and we're counted righteous. We're free, not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ has done. You've spent most of your life in the prison of sin, and now you are free. Why? How? What does this look like? Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death here, that phrase, it's not referring to the law, capital L, like the Mosaic law, which we've talked about uh, in past chapters. It's a little confusing because that has been prominent in Romans. But when Paul says law in this verse, he's referring to like a general rule or a principle. The principle is, because of Adam... We're all going to live in sin and die. That's the principle of sin and death. But there's a different principle or law, and that is the law of the spirit of life. That principle has set you free in Christ Jesus. The other principle, the one of sin and death, would have kept you in prison now. Locked up for the rest of your life and then led to your eternal death. But the principle of life means you're free now, no longer in prison now, but also free from eternal death. In Christ, you get eternal life later and freedom now. But this isn't just any principle, it's the law of the spirit of life. If you notice in most of your Bibles, The word spirit there is capitalized. So that's because it's referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And my sermon is not about this, um, but you could preach uh, many sermons on this reality. The spirit is all over Romans chapter 8. In fact, in this passage we've read today, we see Father, Son, Spirit right there. There is now no condemnation. Condemnation comes from the Father, the righteous judge. There's no condemnation because of the work of the Spirit for those who are in the Son. Again, not the focus of the sermon, but beautiful. Go back and read 1 through 11 and see how many times you can pick out Father, Son, and Spirit, either implied or uh, direct. It's astounding. Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In this verse, Paul goes back to talking about the Mosaic Law. So in the last verse, he was talking about a general rule or principle. Now he's talking about the Law, capital L. He's saying that that law, the Mosaic Law, because of the flesh, couldn't do what it was intended to do. The flesh because of sin, is not capable of keeping the law. So we covered this already. I'm not going to dwell on it too much, except to say that we get it. The law, the moral rules and further of Scripture, they're not inherently bad, but the best that the law can do is reveal to us our sin. It can't cover our sin. The law can't get the job done. You're never going to be able to do enough good stuff To save yourself. That's why God had to send His Son. By sending His Son, He condemned sin in the flesh. But this is unbelievable. God's Son, God Himself, came in the flesh in order that God the Father might condemn sin in the flesh. That God became a man and came in the flesh. We call that what? Big theological term. Yeah, I see some people mouthing it. Nobody wants to speak up. We call that the incarnation. And I would like to preach a whole sermon on just the uh, the incarnation. And as luck would have it, I'm going to preach the Christmas Eve sermon. So I think there's a real good chance you're going to get that uh, sermon. But this is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate, celebrate Advent, God coming. We celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. I will never not be amazed by this reality. But it's unbelievable enough that God the Son would descend and become flesh, but it's even more astounding that he would do that and then be condemned. That's what it means by God the Father condemned sin in the flesh. It means that he condemned sin in the flesh of God the Son. Jesus, God the Son, took that condemnation in his flesh, so that we, the other fleshly creatures who are in Jesus, don't have to. One of the commentators I read said this phrase, four-word phrase, God sent His Son. That is salvation in four words, because there's a lot packed into that phrase. But it really is that simple, isn't it? We're sinners. Sin deserves condemnation. God, in His incredible mercy to us, sent his son and condemned him who didn't deserve it in order to save us who did. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judge took our death sentence and sentenced someone else in our place. Something else that's really interesting about verse 3, I'm going to Put on your theological thinking caps here for just a minute. This phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does it mean to say that Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh? We get that he was sent. We get that his flesh was condemned in order that we might not be. But what does likeness mean here? It's actually a really important and maybe to understand what it does mean, it will first help us to understand one thing that it doesn't mean. So let's try out another wording. Let's remove a word uh, and see if this clarifies the meaning. What if we say that Jesus was sent in the likeness of flesh? So we remove the word sinful. You might think that makes sense. Um, if you do, you're in bad company because some other heretics thought that that made sense. Maybe you think that the word sinful here is unnecessary because human flesh for all mankind by its very nature is sinful. Or maybe you think Jesus wasn't sinful, so let's toss that word out. But if you toss that word out, what would this phrase say about Jesus? He was sent in the likeness of flesh. That would seem to convey that Jesus' flesh isn't real. Well, is, is that a problem? Yeah, it's a big problem. Not only is it not biblical to say that, but the power of the incarnation, the thing that I geeked out about earlier, completely goes away if Jesus Jesus wasn't actually incarnate, if he wasn't actually in the flesh. That's not right. Jesus was sent in the flesh, not in the likeness of flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, loses all power if he wasn't really with us In the flesh. So, if that word likeness there doesn't modify the word flesh, it has to go with the word sinful. Jesus came in the flesh. He was really human. As Hebrews 4 tells us, he was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. So, how do we know he only bore a likeness to sin and that he wasn't actually sinful? Well, the Bible tells us that explicitly. Tells us clearly that he was sinless, but there's a little bit more to it than that. You see, bloodlines are passed down from the Father. Sin is something passed down to every human from our Father, Adam. Remember him? Chapter 5, we heard all about that. Jesus didn't have an earthly Father, God is his Father. Jesus bypassed that sinful bloodline. And look, this is not subtle, okay? Some of us like these movies where you have to be really clever to pick up on the symbolism and the undertones. You don't have to be clever at all to understand what God is saying here. He is screaming at us about who His Son is. This is the only way that it could have gone down. In order for Jesus to take the condemnation that we deserve, He had to be fully God, fully man, and also sinless. He is fully man, but He didn't have a sin nature. The original sin that all of us have, which was passed down from Adam because Jesus didn't get anything passed down from Adam. And this is essential to His work on the cross. Otherwise, he's just another guy who was executed. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, why did God do this? Verse 4, God condemned sin in Jesus' flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So even though sin won't allow us to keep the requirement of the law, we're still held to that standard. And if we walk according to the flesh, we're responsible for keeping every letter of the law, which, of course, we're incapable of doing. But if we walk according to the Spirit, we're only judged on the fact that Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. He did it for us and in us. And that's the reason why He came in the flesh. According to that same spirit, the law is now written on our hearts. We hear that, we say, okay, great. Justification. We're in the book of Romans. We've covered that a hundred times already. This absolutely does mean that you're justified. Legally, when God looks at us, and this is where this courtroom analogy or illustration is really helpful. Legally, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us and he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus. We are now justified before God. That is absolutely 100% true. But that's not all. He's not just talking about this legal justification. How do we know? Well, because Paul spent chapter 7 talking about battling sin in his fight for righteousness. And because in this passage, in Romans 8, everything is in the present tense. We are those who walk according to to the spirit. That's what we're doing right now. The righteous requirements of the law were filled fulfilled in us in the past, justification, but they're being fulfilled in us right now, present tense, sanctification. Jesus didn't die just to legally justify. He also died to change us. He died that we might right now live Righteous lives. That's what sanctification means. It be, means becoming more and more righteous, becoming more and more like Jesus as we go through our lives here on earth. And here's something that I find interesting. If it's true that Jesus died for us so that we might presently, right now, live for Him, that we might strive to live this righteous life, what is our continued sin? say about how we regard what Christ has done for us. One of the commentators I read said, and this hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't know if it'll land the same way with you guys, but it did me. He said, Whenever we sin, we endeavor to frustrate the aim and purpose of the entire life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ.
1: <laughs> we wallow
0: in our sin. We're all in our fields about our struggles. Woe is me. I'm struggling. But how often do we ever stop and think about what our sin says about how we think about and feel about God? When we continue to sin, we're saying to God, that thing that you did in sending your son to come and die and become my righteousness, that's not good enough. That's a wasted effort. The entire purpose of the life and death and ministry of Jesus, eh, that's what we say to God when we continue to sin. And it's right to reflect on our sin and how it affects us and how it affects others. But perhaps it's more important that we reflect on what our sin says about how we feel about God. He is always the one against whom we sin regardless of whoever else is involved. We're no longer in prison. We're no longer on death row. We are free. There is therefore now no Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we should live like that. But what does this life look like? The life of the flesh versus the life of the Spirit. Paul gives us this contrast. Look in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So, what characterizes unbelievers versus believers. What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the flesh? I think that you can make the case here in Romans 8 that whatever you set your mind on, that's the thing that defines you. It's the thing that you find your identity in. So what occupies your mind? And Pastor Tim Keller often says, Whatever you daydream about in your spare time, that's what you ultimately serve. And that sounds overly simplistic, but this week, start taking account of what it is that occupies your mind in those still quiet moments and really reflect on whether or not this is true. Do you sit around constantly thinking of what your next vacation is going to be? You're living for that thing. You sit around anxious about your financial situation to the point that it is consuming you. You spend all your time entertaining yourself. Maybe you're like me and you actively avoid still quiet moments because you've always got something playing in your ear or you're always checking this or reading about that. This is part of what it means to set our minds on the things of the flesh. And I can feel the objections because I have them too. You're thinking, okay, I get it right? I'm I'm spiritual, but I still live in the flesh. Even though I'm in Christ, that doesn't change the fact that I have to eat, and I have to pay the bills. And you know what? I'd like to live a little. So does that mean I do a lot of the same stuff that I used to do, but now I do it for Jesus in the Spirit? Maybe. Maybe not all the same stuff that you used to do. You know, if your hobby was like dog fighting, and your job is like mafioso, then you probably want to cut those things out. Those are things you probably want to let go of. But does it mean that your day-to-day mundane things of life will largely stay the same? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe God's calling you to quit your job and go to some far-off place and be a missionary in some remote part of the world serving Jesus. Maybe God is calling you to stay right where you are and serve Him here. Either way, There are normal day-to-day elements of life that we all participate in. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's part of what it means to set your minds on the things of the Spirit. You're going to do a lot of the same stuff, but now it's done for Christ. The difference is your priorities become radically different and that will alter your life. So think back to the prison illustration. Prisoners work, prisoners eat, prisoners even have leisure time, but they're not free. Everything that they do is in service to the prison or to their prison sentence. When you're free, you do some of the same things that you do when you're in prison, but your entire life is different in that Freedom. So no one would look at someone who is in prison and say, hey, they're, they're just like me. They're just out there living their lives. No. Freedom changes things. But it's not just that, that, that this has implications for your time and your money and your leisure. The consequences are far greater than that. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace Paul is actually telling us that the fleshly-minded person is set on death. That's what you're aiming for if you're in the flesh. You're heading for eternal death. Let's make no bones about that fact. Contrast that with the mind set on the things of the Spirit, which is set on life and peace. The difference is stark. The fleshly person is headed for eternal death, whereas the spiritual person is headed for eternal life. And the difference isn't if you're spiritual, you'll have a more fulfilling life now. But if you're fleshly, you'll be listless with no purpose. The difference isn't if you're spiritual, you'll have your best life now. And if you're fleshly, you'll be missing something. The big difference is life and death. And not just life and death, but eternal life versus eternal life death. More than the consequences for your life to set your mind on the things of the flesh reveals your disposition towards God and his disposition towards you. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You're not indifferent toward God. You're not simply choosing another path. You're not neutral. If you are set on the flesh, you are hostile toward God. Most non-believers, I dare say, don't think of themselves this way. Most nominal Christians who claim Jesus but don't actually possess Him don't think of themselves this way. But there's no such thing as indifferent toward God. That category doesn't exist. You're either with Him or you're against Him. You're either in Him or you are hostile to Him. Verse 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't be both in the flesh and in Christ. You can't serve two masters. If you're in the flesh, no matter what good stuff you do, it doesn't please God because God is not your master. And if I can throw another illustration in here, a morally good person who is in the flesh is like a dutiful soldier in the Nazi army. You may keep your uniform in tip-top shape. You may be a great comrade in arms. You may follow orders. You may be a great marksman, but you serve a wicked master. Everything you do is in hostility to the true master. You live in rebellion. But there's encouragement here. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 9. You, however... Are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That's encouraging. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're not in the flesh. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you are in the Spirit. You're in Him, and He's in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. Verse 10, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Your flesh, all your worldly pursuits are dead because of sin. But in the Spirit, you have life, eternal life, because of His righteousness. Not your righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. You are free, out of the prison, no longer on death row. And look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is an absolutely incredible promise to us. If God the Spirit is in you, by whom God the Father raised God the Son from the dead, Trinity there again, that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise us from the dead. The Spirit dwells in you for your justification, Past salvation, your sanctification, present salvation, and ultimately your glorification or future salvation. But there's a condition here that's really obvious. Paul makes it very obvious. Particularly in verses 9-11, through you see this. You get these if-then statements. So verse 9, If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're not in the flesh. Verse 10, If Christ is in you, the Spirit dwells makes you alive. 11, if the Spirit dwells in you, you have eternal life. And this is built on what was peppered throughout verses 1 through 8, the condition that you must be in Jesus. That is the only way to peace. That is the only way to freedom. That is the only way to no condemnation. So, wrapping up, if you're not believer, then you are like that man, that lifelong prisoner, pulled off a death row, hauled into a courtroom. And make no mistake, the prison is full. The judge hasn't pulled every prisoner into the courtroom. The judgment on most people in the prison remains and the sentence is death. But if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, maybe the judge is calling you out, calling you into the courtroom, offering to take that death sentence away, to pull you off of death row and let you walk out of the prison free. All you have to do is accept his pardon. If you've ever seen the Shawshank Redemption, I probably shouldn't recommend that movie. Uh, It's pretty rough, Um, but if you happen to have seen it, uh, it takes place in a prison, and there's a character in that movie named Brooks, who is a really old man, lifelong prisoner, has been in prison since he was a teenager, and he gets paroled, and he's freed, and all of a sudden, he's out in the world. He lives in a little apartment, and he gets a job at a supermarket, but he was so used to the prison. The false comfort that the walls and the routine inside that prison provided. He had camaraderie in prison. His entire life and identity was wrapped up in being a prisoner because that was all that he had ever known. So once he's freed and he's on the outside, he can't handle it. He would give anything to go back into prison, but that wasn't an option. And so he eventually commits suicide because freedom for him was harder than incarceration. Believer, there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. You're free. Do you still live like you're in prison? Do you fight against the freedom that you have in Christ? Do you go back and ask the warden if you can sleep in your old cell? Do you drive around looking for a chain gang so you can join in? Do you behave as one who is still condemned? The Christian who reverts to the life of the flesh is no different than the freed prisoner going back to the prison and banging on the gate, begging to be let back in. If you're in Christ, that's not you anymore. Your identity is no longer found in being a prisoner but in being a free child of the living God. You are no longer in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, if we are completely and truly honest with you and with ourselves about who we are, we have to admit that we know that we are sinners. That we know that that's our identity. That our identity is as those who are in prison, on death row, condemned. Father, we thank you that you didn't leave us there. We thank you that you have called us out. To be free, not because of anything that we've done, certainly not because we deserve freedom. But Father, you've called us out to be free based on the perfect work of your Son who came and took that penalty, took that condemnation for us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he's done. Father, help us to put our faith and hope and trust in him that we might be more and more like him every day, living as those who have been freed, not as those who are still in prison. And Father, we pray this to you. We pray it in the name of your son. We pray that the Holy Spirit would apply this in our lives. Amen.